destroyed nonchalance. Taking culture apart one episode at a time. A social commentary podcast on pop culture, fashion, film, and music. One. Hello. Welcome back to Destroyed Nonchalance. Um, This is Rick and I. We're sitting here. I don't even know how to introduce this right now. Okay. Just don't say we're back this week. And don't don't say. I mean, don't say this is Rick and I. Just say we're back this week. We should say our names, though. Like... Well, then you say this is... This is Troy, and then you say this is Rick. Right? Okay. We've never done that, but sure. Hello. Welcome back to Destroyed Nachalaz. This is Troy. This is Rick. And we're going to catch up on our week. And we're going to talk a bit about some of the shows that we've been watching. Um, Like Miss America... We're here. We started Insecure. And then we're going to talk about some um, relevant queer stuff that we've been doing for IA, our website, Image Amplified. Okay. That sounds interesting because that's all we've been doing. <laughs> and okay. that has to be interesting. So Yeah. Yes. Well, it's not all we've been doing because this past week was... So intense in terms of writing, getting this draft done for um, one of my supervisors. And yeah, I spent a lot of time writing this week and translating my research and the theories and the concepts and everything into language that's more open to like a wider variety of audience audiences. So that way, um, when I'm researching can be understood and then you know it's it made it more concrete well i mean from what you've said it's going well but what was the big change that you just found out about i don't know if you want to talk about that you know with your supervisor oh my supervisor well um my supervisor Let me know a couple of weeks ago that she is changing universities. She's leaving UAL, uh, Central St. Martins, and she's going to Amsterdam. And we've put in an application so that she could still stay on with the project. Um, And then the supervisor of mine, who's actually leading like the ethnography side, because that's what I'm going to be doing when I whenever I get to go back out into the field to start doing this kind of research, um, he's actually going to take on the role of like the lead supervisor. So my supervisory team is getting uh, a bit of a shakeup. And I'm actually, I don't think Royce is going to be working on, he's not going to be a, a supervisor on the team anymore. Um, and then Jane. My but he's super- mainly been helping the language and, having it be more understandable, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so that's... And refining the voice. Your voice, anyways. Exactly. He Exactly. Because, you know, my writing style um, tended to be really dense and um, putting together and comparing a lot of theories and it can... Well, be... one sentence 
can be like a paragraph of thinking. And I don't try to do that, honestly. I mean, it's just... It's not all bad. I mean... No. If you can put that much information into one sentence, then, you know... Yeah. That can be a good thing. That definitely helps with relevant queer. Because I'm always semi-surprised at how much condensing you can do with a lot of the stuff. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely got, like, I've had a lot of writing challenges in the past couple of years now with writing in, um, like, the RQ style, relevant queer style, and then, you know, this literature review that I've been working on, the confirmation document, and then, you know, translating it all into a language that people, like, um, you know, whether they're professors from other fields or just the general public, so that that way they have an understanding of what it is that I'm looking at. And so that's a completely different way of writing. And it's just, it's just really strange when you've been like writing passages here and there for two years and then you're trying to translate it into a very like digestible language. You start figuring out what that language is as you do it, or at least I did. So even things that I wrote a couple of months ago, when I started trying to, to write in this more open language, I, ha- I'm starting, like, I didn't have an idea of what kind of words I wanted to use and what were the reliable keywords that would signpost readers as they go through, like, all of these paragraphs and everything. But, is this boring? No. I, yeah, it's, that's what I've been doing. It's like, so, uh, yeah. So, it's, it's just, I mean, so I mean, it's not. It it was going to be a natural tr- transition, but it's just for you know fr- from going to what you were doing to the ethnography, and it's not like you're not disheartened and defeated or no, anything. By no, changing. no, not at all. And I mean, because it seems I like, like it's phases. Like, oh, this phase, you were really going to be with that part of the team a lot, and then this phase. Well, that other part doesn't really apply yeah, here. Yeah, because so Jane, mean, my my supervisor, it's like a team. yeah, and they kind of hand off the different parts, the different phases of the project. Like Jane, my head supervisor, she's not an ethnography person, and she she has said that from the beginning, and that's why she brought in Nathaniel, and Nathaniel is the ethnography person, and and I mean with COVID and everything else, I have just haven't gone out into the field to do any ethnography but now like getting my project going and like like keeping on track towards completion i have to get out in the field and he's the perfect person to like to step up and get the project to the next phase and jane wants to stay on board so she can like oversee the cohesiveness of it like from one phase to the next if that makes sense yeah yeah and you know so uh, my, going back to my basic, my first point was that it was a very long writing week. And it's always like that when you have a draft due. <laughs> and I mean, I try to structure my time so it doesn't all bottleneck and everything. And uh, I don't know. It's just a lot of writing. I mean, and I'm yeah. not finding a lot outside the house right now to enjoy doing anyway. So I can't even really complain that I'm having to spend a lot of time in front of a screen writing because I don't know. We just went out today. 
it's the only time this week that we've gone out. That we've gone out. I, I think I went quickly downstairs for like a 10 minute grocery stop. Right. But other than that, like it, today was a real walk. James, we spent a couple of hours. We, we started from here, like around yeah. Oxford Street and we headed down towards the river. We walked through the West End a bit, um, embankment. We walked around the park down there and it was nice. It was a really good day for it. And we were ready well, cause you don't like people and you know, who doesn't like people at the, at the morning time on a Sunday, nobody's out. <laughs> you. <laughs> I like people. Well, I mean, well. I don't. I, I don't necessarily want to be surrounded by a bunch of them right now, at in, like any one place. And I mean, you can't tell me that you don't feel the same, because you'll make comments as we're walking no, around. No, I mean, I, I'm fine being outside as long as I have a mask on. And if you are around very busy streets, it's probably more enjoyable in Paris or. A different country because you get bored of the same busy streets and I just haven't gotten bored. Yeah, I can't. I mean, we kind of know each other a little bit, you know. (laughs) But, okay, but let's own up to everything, though. Wasn't it more comfortable with everything that's been going on, the social distancing and everything, to walk where there were less people? I'm not saying I didn't enjoy it. No, isn't it more comfortable to walk where there are less people? I can't agree or disagree. I'm going to have to talk to my lawyer. <laughs> the I, reason you're saying that is because we, ha- we have both commented on, oh, should we take this street because there's less people? And I usually do that to make you happy. No, you have said it specifically in relation to social distancing and crowds on the sidewalk. Well, no, I mean, it's all mixing up. Before COVID and post-COVID, the feelings and the thoughts around stuff, it's all mixing up. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, when there were were a lot of people that we went out one time and I just wasn't wearing a mask because we had talked and we had it with us, but, oh, we're outside, but I wasn't comfortable you know, people walking in front of you a bit and on the side and passing you. And it's just not enjoyable at all. Yeah. You know, so every time we've gone out, I just wear a mask all the time. That's it. And I mean, there is that part where you're talking about like busy streets. And if it were a different city, I would be like more. I would enjoy it more. That's just because it's the one street that we live next to, and it's the one street we kind of have to go on, even during the time when everything was locked down. We have to go on Oxford Street to get to Marks and Spencer's and um, and Waitrose. Fill in the blank. I mean, but <laughs> we don't want to be like giving everybody our right specific. But everything. it does get boring. To, like, that one street gets really boring, whereas, you know, a busy street in Paris, a busy street in New York, as long as it's not too touristy and it's just busy because it's everybody, like, doing their thing. It's not fair. Yeah, it's just... It's fair, but what have you been watching this week? (laughs) I think we should move on from this part, maybe. So we went out today and we enjoyed it. Whereas most of the time we're working on a number of projects, but when we get to take a break, 
We've been watching Miss America with Kate Blanchett. We've been watching We're Here with Bob the Drag Queen, Shangela, and um, Eureka, and Insecure with Issa Rae. Those are like the three shows I can think of, like up off, off the top of my head, that we've been watching. Well, going back to Miss America, it's a ensemble. Miss America. Well, yeah, I mean, but- I mean, Rose Byrne. Tracy Ullman, Sarah Paulson, Margo Martindale, Elizabeth Banks, Uzo Duba. There I mean, are so many good actors in that. There's a lot of ones. I know, like, Kate Blanchett is kind Top of billing. in every episode. I think other than one episode, she wasn't when they had the convention. In and Houston. she is, like, the biggest actor in that cast, I think. Well, I, mean, I guess it just depends on how you look at it, I guess. You know, I mean, yeah, well, I'm not going to argue with that. She's the movie star. Yeah, I mean, all the others have, like, I mean... Really good track records. Yeah, I mean, okay, like, Rose Byrne, for example. This is a very different, like, role for her. Gloria Steinem, uh, like, she's, like, I really like Rose Byrne playing Gloria. That's not something I've ever seen Rose do. No, but I think that you've got... I think that Rose Byrne has erased a little bit of what she used to do before she did the funny movies. Because she remembered damages with Glenn Close. Yeah. And she was a lawyer and she was, you know, it was more of like this aspect of things. Cause Rose Byrne as Gloria Steinem, I, she did the job so well that I forgot I was watching Rose Byrne. Yeah, no, she did I know. It so it's well. Just, so she's done really well. She did really I well. I mean, she can do a lot. She, she has done some of the comedy things that you can like kind of. You know, and I think there was a lot of comedy in the Gloria character. But it was so subtle, very understated. I mean, when you think of her in Damages versus this, like her Gloria looks more like her comedy role than her early Damages kind of performance. I think, I think that she was able to do Gloria so well because she's done so much comedy and all of that. Cause she totally changed her mannerisms, her way of talking, and like her, you can't tell if that's a wig that she's wearing or it's a very good wig. It was just a total transformation. Whereas damages, really she just kind of looked look like Rose Byrne. Well, I mean, I think that was one of the first things we saw her in, right? I yeah. Remember her yeah. And other stuff before, but she's done horror stuff, and she's she's done a lot. So I mean, that's kind of I know Kate Blanchett is like the big bill. Yeah. And she does take the biggest character because they kind of all get their own episodes and they, they sprinkle into each other's episodes here and there. But Kay Blanchett is like the big, the big arc, which, you know, she's Phyllis Schlafly or whatever. Phyllis. And I honestly didn't know anything about Phyllis, Phyllis Schlafly. I'd heard of her, but, and only through like Stephanie Miller stuff. So I really like the show because it, it gave me a whole pack of women that, and uh, from that whole, from that time, I didn't really know a lot about them. I know about Gloria Steinem, but, you right. know, Shirley Chisholm, I heard of her once because she ran for president, but I've heard the name and a lot of these women, like, you know, Bella Asberg and Betty Frieden, those are the kind of people, Absent. this is the kind of yeah. show, if like Relevant Queer was a TV show, you know, like, yeah, a lot of, the people that get researched for that 
you know, I mean, they would kind of be in that time or, I don't know, like, you know, doing big things. And so I really liked it for the fact that it was real historical figures and I really didn't know a lot about that and how that part of time had such a cataclysmic effect into everything that we've lived for the past few decades. Yeah, I mean, when you hear that Schlafly, her last book that was released, like, just as she was dying, was a defense of Trump as a candidate. I mean, that just shows you <laughs> just the, the dumpster fire that her whole thought Poison. pattern was. It was just... And I mean, I, I, I'm fine with debate, and, you know, you have your point of view, but... Like, in this series, you saw her draw, like, a moral line against, um, like, one thing or this, and then kind of cave and kind of cave. And finally, like, she saw herself as someone who should be so employed that she would be on a cabinet, and she was way more interested in defense than she was this domestic side that she was saying that women should be, like, focused on. Yeah. And then, you know, she basically wrote her own defeat using her own arguments and and then she by the time she died she had caved so much that she was defending Trump that was her last effort and so to me it just there was no integrity to what what it is that she was doing and again i only know about her from watching this show and so it's one side of the story and i mean more people should really cuz i can I'll, you got, it's not just one side. This, this story is like, you get to see a person and how their life, uh, everything that happens in their lives affects them and right. how people are full humans and they're not like, this is the good guys and this is the bad guys. Oh yeah, no, no. I mean, they do present her as multidimensional, but I'm just saying this was written by one writer, one team of writers. And if another team of writers um, took well, yeah, on this project, could... then you might have an understanding as to why you might, like, maybe Schlafly wasn't cratering out by the time she wrote this defense of Trump. Maybe it was there all along and it's justifiable, you know, according to her vision. But I say what they, the story that they told of her and the decisions that she made throughout the course of the series that we were presented with this time, that this, I, that this person, wrote a defense of Trump just as she was dying. I don't see the logical connection other than it was just a big sellout to the right. Well, I mean, yeah. And I mean, it's, it's difficult when shows are portraying real people because you know, they have to take freedoms. Right. And, in drama, drama, dramatizing, you know, these lives a bit, but I mean, it's not like her family was going to come up and be like, yeah, she, you know, but there are certain assumptions that you can make on how somebody's going to feel when, you know, this candidate Reagan that you propped up and essentially like gave him this win doesn't really do anything for you. And you can make some, you know, two plus two equals assumptions based on certain things. So, I mean, I don't, I don't think that. It's very left field and some of the things that they did. And I mean, even like Jimmy Carter and how they handled Bella as, uh, Ab- Abzerg. Abzerg. I keep saying it wrong. 
and how they handled that and how everything kind of fell apart and just, I mean, how everything was so man-centered right. and it still kind of is in this um, campaign that was slowed down by Schlafly is still not completed till up until now. <laughs> like... That. Yeah, the, you mean to get the ERA passed, ratified yeah, in all the states and everything. All of that. Um, the I 38 mean, states. It wasn't just that, you know, she was screwed over by the men or the women that were in this movement were kind of just used as pawns. Like, uh, oh, you know, this. look at what we're doing. The women are here. And... They were just kind of like mantelpieces, even even the the liberation movement women and how they were treated at the end and just all all of it. I mean, you know, you you still have some of these women around to to speak on this and write books and all of that. But the kind of headway that they made, the fact that Reagan ended up putting a pro ERA woman, yeah, yeah, I mean, in his administration, um. Maybe it comes down to it's a lot easier to give lip service to a cause than actually do anything about it. And, you know, pick a woman who says she's pro ERA, but don't really give her any power and nothing will change for 40 years. It's just such a battle. I mean, I think everybody should be required to see, <laughs> see things like this. And I mean, watch whatever else, but, you know, when you, it's like coloring the picture a little bit more. Right. It's like reading a book, um, watch some of these shows that just continue to fill in that picture. It's never complete, but at least you have, you know, some more, uh, maybe a little bit of respect for these women. And or even if it sparks the curiosity, like if you didn't know much about Gloria Steinem or Bella Abzug or... Um, even, you know, one of the characters that I really like is Shirley Chisholm character played by Uzo Aduba. And am I saying her name right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, as far as I know. I mean, what kind of performance was that? Because I don't know a lot of what she's done outside of Orange is the New Black. But, and you know, I know that she's talented, but that portrayal of Shirley Chisholm was so good and it was so deep and like it was yeah but she was like I mean you you think about the African-American experience and the woman experience and just how beat down this woman was so, yeah and it's exciting for these shows because you can you can go and see some of the debates like the debates like Kate Blanchett and her husband did with uh, some of the other people, that married couple. You, right. you can actually go and see the debates or the speeches by Shirley, Shirley Chisholm. And it's just... Did you go back and watch any of those I, after I the saw show? the debate, a little bit of the debate with Phyllis. And, you know, when she kind of burned, her husband left her hanging. <laughs> okay, so we're here. Is uh, the next show or another show that we've been watching. And this is basically where three of the most talented drag queens, um, Bob, who I really like, Shangela, I really like, Eureka, I'm learning to like more, because I didn't, I just didn't know that much about Eureka. But 
they're heading into these small towns, <laughs> like small towns, villages basically, and recruiting. Um, and well, they're getting involved in the community a bit. It's almost like a queer eye with drag queens. Uh, so they're getting involved in the community. They're, they're working with people who either want to do drag or have like this kind of opposition to drag. And they're going in there and changing the hearts and minds of small town people across America. We've only watched a few episodes. So am I, am I pretty much saying it right? Yeah. Describing the show, right? And honestly, I, whenever it, and this just came out, it came out on HBO, like, Maybe a month ago, it finished, and I didn't think it was going to be that good, or I I thought it was kind of just going to be like a copy of Queer Eye, and honestly, after the first episode, I still wasn't sure whether the show was going to be that good. I know we were going to watch it all, because we like these drag But we've watched how many now? Two. Two. And, and that second one kind of destroyed me. So, <laughs> like it, we, makes you, it made me think a lot about things I didn't really think about. And wow, how hurtful, how much more hurtful they are. Like, when you give think me about some specifics, like what kind of way. things? Well, I mean, there was that trans couple and they were having to deal with their family and the family accepting them. And Who, the family's very religious. They're Mormon. Mormon. And, and even like having that wedding and, you know, wanting to have a wedding so that people can be happy for you. Right. And <laughs> like it's such a basic thing. It's not about Bridezilla or any of that. Which we've it's, seen shows where that's the feature. That is, that's the entertainment about. value was like and the bridezilla is out of control. This is not that. This and the, the, the groom just kept saying over and over again, I just wanted people in a room that were, that were happy that we were getting married. So Bob, Shangela and Eureka roll into town. And one of the things they decide they're going to do is give this couple a drag wedding, which sounds so irreverent. And just so, like, opposite of what the Mormon family would ever want to see associated with marriage. I mean, you had Eureka up there, and you had Bob up there, and they were doing their full-on drag shows. They weren't holding back just because they were in a small-town religion that was very religious. And when the wedding part came on, it was very touching. Even though it was dragged out, it was perfect. Performance, like, I was surprised that they expected that kind of drag performance of a wedding to actually touch the family that didn't even well, I mean, it's, buy into the like a, a more somber, like traditional, respectable version of a wedding. You visibly saw, and it, this was only one side of the family. It right. was the the trans person's family. And only the mom and the sister. Right. Let's be honest. The dad was not there and the brothers were not there. There were only those two people and they were visibly emotional. But I mean, the, the wife in, in this couple, 
she didn't have her family there at all. And her dad didn't walk her down the aisle. And she still didn't get that moment that Shangela gave. You know, right. she walked her down the aisle. I mean, that whole thing. Because I didn't know what they were going to do. And just... Yeah, I mean, the song and how well the, those lyrics fit. Because we've just... never been a fan of the... what. It was from the musical. The Greatest Showman? Yeah. And This Is Me? This Is Me. And I mean, it's a good song. And I can see how, you know, emotional it was when it was initially presented. But connected to this and the message. And I mean, Shangela was like, you know, if we don't do it right, don't fuck it up. Like, she was Shangela mom, like, whenever they were rehearsing. But the, the thing that hit was how close these feelings are to what I might feel and I never even have thought about them in that way or you know at all because I mean I can't think of very many people that I have in my life that are supposed to be called family right that would be I don't know I don't even I don't no, it, so it just it became really emotional because it brought up a lot of feelings. That that part of it brought up a lot of feelings of you know, it's such a simple thing. And everybody always goes to weddings and you know, weddings are what they are, but essentially at the most basic level, it's you being happy for them right. getting together and you know, they're in love and they're living their life. And that was one part of that episode that, you know, yeah, I was crying. And it's like, you can't really hold them back. And the other part was the man that he's a drag queen in that in this community, but he's kind of on his own. And his grandpa is, you oh, know, that's, r- that's right. The, that side of the, that his champion and somebody he talked about, you know, being suicidal at times. And if he didn't have his grandpa and it's just, to and you know, to think of the people that don't have anything like that and i mean to to think of people that are supposed to be family that know you that much and right. still love you not not in like oh yeah i love you like how family is supposed to say it yeah and i'm not going for my family's wig here or anything but it was like really genuine and it was very like a day to day detail kind of love. Cause I mean, this grandfather had just had a heart attack. He's this little old man sitting his, in his recliner chair and he walks and he, and his grandson walks out in full on drag. And we're not talking about like a, like a floor level gown with like big, um, hair. We're yeah. talking about like a very skimpy gown, fishnet stockings and everything. And the grandfather was there for it. <laughs> and like they asked him, they asked the grandfather, are you going to go to the drag performance? And he's like, you can't keep me from going to this drag performance. And I mean, and I don't know, know how that to me seems like it'd be very rare. That has to be so rare. I mean, there have to be... And you can just imagine the hard life that Guy has had. Yeah. I'm... You know, I liked 
Bob before this show. Because, you know, I liked his sense of humor. I liked the way he won his season of Drag Race. I like Cracker and, you know, like what I know of their relationship, the way Bob talks about Cracker and vice versa. Miss Cracker. <laughs> you, should, you should say their full name. Oh, well. Because I don't know if people are going to know, like, like you're saying Cr- Bob and Cracker. <laughs> and I was like, what? Who's Bob? Like, Bob the Drag Queen. Bob the, the Drag name. Queen and Ms. Cracker. Ms. Cracker Fine. Drag Bob the Drag child. Queen. Yes, his drag child you're is like, Ms. Cracker. No. <laughs> well, I mean, that's where Cracker gets her name from. But mm. anyway, and like, Shangela has, like, she in this season, Shows so much depth. The, 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 I mean, I never imagined any of these drag queens relating to people in small towns, but Shangela's like, I know these people from small towns. Eureka. It's like, I know these people from small towns. Everybody comes from someplace. And, and these, like, for Shangela to go and sit down in these living rooms and speak to people and relate to them and still be her. But be her in this situation and winning people over like she always wins people over. It's just, we know like the show busy side of her because we see it. But this, like you get to see some depth to these drag queens. And I don't know that it's, it's just, it can't be, it doesn't seem scripted or faked or any of that. And like, you know, I like Queer Eye. But a lot of it is, it's kind of like they treat it as fixing a house. Right. They don't, they, they go so deep into pulling some roots and touching some really uncomfortable places in, we're here that I don't think they, it, they don't get as messy in something that they need neatly tied in a bow. Like they would so you're saying Queer Eye doesn't get as messy? No, I, I don't think so. I like Queer Eye, but it's yeah. very like, oh, look, we finished the show and they're perfect now. And no, and I don't think that they make they make that kind of statement in a way. And right. Queer Eye doesn't make that statement in that same way, but they, we assume, right? And we're here... They pass the baton, <laughs> literally. Like, okay, yeah. we have come here, yeah. and we made ourselves known, and we did our intervention. That's what I would call it. They they do an intervention. They lit the match. They lit the and match. And now it's up to you to carry the torch. You have to see how important what they've done, right? Lighting this match is, and then they leave leaders. So they're beacons, but it gives like a gives room for the local drag queens to do what they do to raise the whole community up the whole small town up let's talk a bit about image amplified and relevant queer because um right now we're trying to choose two to three people to highlight per week on their birthday uh, people for you know queers from history that um that they seem relevant to what's going on right now and you know uncovering what we didn't know about people queer people from the past so who did we do this week we did a poet 
Yes, it was John Ashbery. Right. And an activist. Yeah. Who was Barbara Giddings. Okay, so let's start with John Ashbery. Yeah, so, I mean, he was a poet, critic, and critic, and he basically won all the awards. <laughs> Pulitzer Prize. Did you know anything about him? Not at all because no. even mtv had nominated him named him as like the first poet laureate of mtv university but i didn't even know that mtv had a university no and a lot of the people that we've done or have been writers and poets yeah. that have been you know relevant queers and i mean he this this guy did a lot and he wrote a lot of books and he taught and the the big surprising thing to me was that, and I guess it shouldn't be so surprising because a lot of people don't value the arts as much as they should. Right. Still, you know, even after his, you know, great books went down and got all the awards that you can get and, you know. <laughs> and he, what was his second job? I mean, him being an, an editor... And a writer and a critic. And, you know, he talked about not loving being a critic eventually. Because he critiqued art. Yeah. And, and he's so did, subjective. Yeah. But he did get to meet Andy Warhol. And see, I know I love Andy Warhol. Like, I loved reading about him. I loved listening to his recordings. And, you know, I like some of his paintings. I like his films and everything. And The Factory just obsessed me for, like forever in fact i don't even know if i told you this but i one of my living rooms i covered it in tinfoil like the factory and because i just loved all that so much but i did not know that this poet john ashbury had any connection to warhol but warhol threw him a party when he relocated from paris back to new york and he influenced a lot of the factory people um, because there were some budding writers in the factory. And a lot of the people that we do, especially when they're writers and poets, yeah. cross paths. And so it's always interesting to see, oh, this, you know, th 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 this person crossed the paths of, of, you know, this other person when they lived in Paris or... Any of that, I mean, Gertrude Stein always pops up all the time when you think about, like, the big... Right. The big names at the time. Because he was part of the New York Poets Group, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think Frank O'Hare was one of the poets that we've done in the past, and there were pictures of them together, uh, John Ashbury and, and Frank O'Hare's. Yeah, I mean, it's just when I think of people or places and how their connection points... That to me is really interesting. And that's the, that's the idea of relevance to me. Like all the connections, all the connections. Well, um, yeah. And I mean, the fact that he was openly gay at this time. Yeah. And even a radical in the poetry circles and the way that he didn't just do what everybody else did. The next person... Barbara Giddings, she she started out, um, she was a theater major in school, but she knew she was lesbian. And when the psychiatrist, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, the psychiatrist that she went to in college confirmed 
oh yeah, you are a lesbian and I can fix you. She started becoming so obsessed with learning everything that she could about homosexuality that she ended up failing a lot of her classes because she wanted to keep reading about it. And university libraries, her high school library had next to nothing about, there's no information about homosexuality in the libraries. And what was there was so derogatory and so um, just alien to her own experience that she couldn't relate to it at all. So then she started looking for gay literature, something that would just tell the story, like some kind of story that she could relate to. But it took so much time and was such a struggle that it was like a full-time effort on her part. She flunked all of her classes and she didn't, she didn't graduate with a degree in theater. She went on to just become like an activist. She, she did find one book that talked about homosexuality in a positive way, but anything she found was ma- mainly male-centric, nothing about lesbians. Right. And nothing about love. Right. And so, yeah, so whenever she was in college, consumed with all of this, you know, she, she I think, chose the right path, and she's she became an activist and is considered the... Uh, I don't want to say the, but like a mother of the LGBTQ movement. This this was before Stonewall. It was her battle with the um, the psychiatrists that became like her most well known battle because she was responsible. The debate that she participated in, they were responsible for homosexuality being removed from the list of mental illnesses, and so. And she did, she was in a debate with a psychiatrist. Yeah, so she got this gay psychiatrist to go into this panel and talk to other psychiatrists about removing this label. And this psychiatrist wore a mask. And he looked like Leatherface, if you see the, <laughs> it the was images. really creepy. Kind of scary. Like, <laughs> what is Leatherface doing Wait, is that, in, is that on Instagram now? Yeah. That, okay. If you go either to the website, Image Amplified, or to the Instagram, you can see a picture of this panel. And I'm sure you can find other pictures, other angles. And, I mean, eventually we found out who that psychiatrist was. But at the time... He wanted to hide his identity because everything was so... I mean, if you think about the times and these fights, yeah, they were so at the initial point that it, the risk, everything was just so, so big. His professional reputation was on the yeah, line. And every, anybody who was in the forefront of the movement was taking a huge risk. Right. And it must have been really scary. And I mean... Which is really strange to think of today, like because you think of scientists and psychiatrists being at the forefront of wanting to learn more and to make progress, and the very fact that you're going to raise this question, is it, like you had, it was more dignified for you to go on stage wearing that mask than it was to ask the question and to question whether or not homosexuality was an illness. Hey, but they they got the job job done. Yeah, they got the job done. And for that reason, she was, she's considered like the mother of the gay rights uh, movement. And and she worked on, she was an editor for The Ladder, which is a lesbian magazine. And her partner of, what was it, like 
40 plus years 46 or 47 years she's still alive she's um, still and she was a photojournalist yeah and it's just like her work in you think about it it's such a basic thing like having gay literature in libraries you know for other young people to read about this and not be alone like she was having to find about this on uh, about herself and her feelings at that young age and having it not demonized like she did a lot of work in getting literature into schools and libraries and yeah so honored. much so what was the name of the librarian association um she wasn't a librarian but she worked so much with the librarians that they made her an honorary member uh, because she wrote the their history and um i think yeah it was the uh, american library association yeah and so she wasn't a librarian but they made her a lifetime member because of all the work that she did yeah. in terms of getting information knowledge about homosexuality into the libraries she like her impact was huge and you again you don't think of at least I don't, librarians being on the forefront of anything like that until you realize they, they hold the knowledge. They, they, they have the key to all of this, all the books, all the literature. Um, they're basically like an, an archivist of knowledge that students have access to, that readers have access to. And when there's something huge that's just completely missing, then librarians are going to appreciate that contribution because you're adding knowledge. You're making knowledge available when it wasn't available before. Barbara Giddings, she's beloved by a lot of people in the community. And, and they're vocal. It's not a story that, uh, yeah, they are vocal. And it's not a story that a lot of, I guess, just the, a lot of new gay people know about. <laughs> And it should be really wide and out in in any platform, especially Instagram. Just as it's a library of its own, and it can be more than just fashion photo images. Or we like it's selfish in a way for me because I enjoy doing it, and I do it for you know I I like learning all of these new things about people I didn't know that maybe I should have and you know, share it now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, because we do it on Instagram, put it on IA, and then we've even gotten into Wikipedia to make some changes and to add, like, to make some contribution. There's books that have some information that isn't anywhere else. And it's kind of like that, that thing where when you digitize something, when images are just physical images that are nowhere and they don't live in the web... And right. then you digitize them, and they, so you're kind of like digitizing these different sources into the posts that we do with images from their life, and just all of these different moments. If I find meaning in it, I hope that I'm translating the meaning to audiences outside of me and us. And go all Rachel Maddow. That's a special kind of deep dive investigation yeah like i would just love to have the time for that like just love to have but right now i certainly don't i really wish we could travel right now and do some of this work 
I'm like, I, I How sad. Okay. <laughs> Nobody's going anywhere. Bye. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast. We put it on Google. And follow us on social media. We're on every platform. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We're everywhere. Thank you.